I invite you to find Luke chapter 12 and verse 22. The text today focuses on verse 22 through verse 34 of Luke's gospel in chapter 12. The message is entitled, Do Not Worry. I think a subject that is quite necessary and applicable for us all, especially in this season that we find ourselves in. And I would ask you the question that I already know the answer to. Do you ever have anxiety or worry? Obviously, we all do to varying degrees from time to time. Uh, Anxiety and worry is a normal emotion. Our brains react to the stress and to the pressures and to the uncertainties of life around us to help us process the situations that we encounter. And it's typically based on fear of the unknown or uncertainty about what we're going to encounter. And I know you've all heard that because of the pandemic that we're in, uh, it has either sparked or amplified anxiety and worry significantly. Joshua Morgenstein with the Center for the Study of Traumatic Stress in Maryland said, historically the adverse mental health effects of disasters impact more people and last much longer than health effects. If history is any predictor, uh, we should expect a significant follow-up of mental health needs that will continue long after the infectious outbreak resolves. They did a 25-year retrospective review of the impact of the Chernobyl nuclear accident in Ukraine, which left thousands of people dead and uh, economic catastrophe in its wake. And they found even that much longer that the people who were the first responders during that time still had elevated anxiety and depression and PTSD decades after it had concluded. The issues that we're focusing on now center on social isolation and chronic loneliness, fear of loss, and so on. Worry at the core is an uneasy feeling or an overly uh, involved concern about a situation or a problem, or about the potential of a situation or a problem. Chronic worry and the anxiety that it can bring uh, can cause us to lose sleep, to be irritable and difficult to get along with, and can cause all types of health issues that we might experience. Some people tend to worry more about the past. It's been referred to as the shoulda, coulda, woulda syndrome. Uh, This is probably the most useless type of worry because none of us can go back and change something that has already taken place. Some people tend to worry about the future. They think about the possibilities, the problems, the perils, the promises, and that's also useless because none of us can control the future that is in front of us. And then some people seem to just get caught up in an endless cycle of worry and at times literally make themselves sick over it. Now, I think that the preceding parable in Luke chapter 12 about the foolishness of the rich man's greed is connected with the text that is before us. And I'll show you how and why as we work our way through this passage. But Leon Morris said, greed can never get enough, while worry is afraid that it might not ever have enough. 
And Jesus connected the two uh, by stating back in verse 15 that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then we'll see in verse 23 that life is more than food and the body is more than clothes. So let's begin reading in Luke chapter 12 and verse 22. And Jesus is speaking and it says, Then he, Jesus, said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Verse 28, if then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God. And all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. Verse 34. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think we will do well to take the instructions of Jesus on worry to heart and learn from them. The first instruction is do not worry because your heavenly father cares for you. Do not worry because your heavenly father cares for you. The focus is on verse 22 and 23. I believe the command do not worry is a loving command. He's saying to us, listen, don't get caught up in anxiety. Don't be anxious. Don't be unduly concerned. The word is used twice in this passage. Now, obviously, there's a difference between a reasonable sense of responsibility, which we all should have. We all survey the uh, circumstances of life and we look at the reality of what it is that we're facing. We uh, comprise a plan to deal with whatever the situation or the circumstance is. And that's certainly prudent. So he's not saying just throw caution to the wind. But what he is saying is there's a difference between that type of reasonable sense of responsibility and worry that is self-focused and rooted in a lack of faith. Now, worry in those days would have centered more on just the basics of life, the needs that people would have like food and clothing. And Jesus does something here by using a familiar form of Jewish teaching that we have encountered before by arguing from the lesser to the greater. And I'll show you that in just a moment. But he says, do not worry. He's saying the key thing in life is not things at all. 
And he's not just talking about the non-essentials. He's talking about the basics of life. And he says, even the things that we need, even the things that are basic, even the things that everybody would recognize they need, are not in reality the main things of life. In fact, the main thing of life, the most important focus in life, is to be rightly related with God and to have your soul related to him in such a way that you trust in him and you know that he cares for you. So your soul is what is most important to God. It's not this external stuff that we tend to get wrapped up in and uh, anxiety takes over because of it. Psalm 55 in verse 22 says, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. First Peter chapter five and verse six and seven says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. Billy Graham said, anxiety is the natural result when our hopes are centered in anything short of God and his will for us. Each of us can face life with confidence by trusting in God. And the idea that God cares for you personally ought to be one of the most reassuring, comforting things that you could ever think. In fact, if you were to leave here today and not remember anything else that I've said, I would want you to remember that God cares for you. He knows you and he cares for you. Now, when Peter speaks of casting all our cares on the Lord, to cast means to propel something from one place to the other or to transfer your concerns. So the idea is that, yes, we have these burdens in life. Yes, we have these realities that are not always good. Yes, we have these stressors that come our way. But what we're to do with all of these things is to transfer that concern to God, to transfer that care to him because he cares for us. And I think the way that we do that most often and most practically is through prayer. And this is why our prayer relationship with God is so important. God already knows the burden that is on our heart. He already knows the things that might bring us anxiety. He already knows that we're wrapped up in worry. But he wants us to come to him because he's our loving heavenly father. And he cares for us. And we know that we can bring these concerns to him in prayer. And he hears us and meets us at our point of need. Your heavenly father cares for you. The second instruction is do not worry because your heavenly father provides for you. Now the focus shifts to verse 24 through verse 31. We find a reference here to ravens. It's the only one in the New Testament. And when he mentions that the ravens neither sow nor reap nor store up food, he doesn't mean that we should not work. He doesn't mean that we shouldn't plan for our provisions. You'll want to note here that the birds do not worry, but they do work. In other words, they do what they've been created to do. So God's given you a mind. God's given you abilities. God has given you opportunities. And you should use that mind and those abilities and that opportunity to work. But at the same time, trust God. 
And Jesus gives us a contrast between the lowly raven and the rich fool that we met in the parable just before. You remember the rich fool? He wrongly focused on storing up plenty for the future. His farming was quite successful to the point that he didn't know what he was going to do with all of it. So he decided, hey, I'll just, I'll just tear down these old barns that I have and I'll build up some new bigger barns and I'll just store up more for myself for the future. And the scripture says that God said to this rich fool, your soul will be required of you this night. Everything that he had done, everything that he had accumulated, all of the successes were focused on the wrong things. And in the end, it proved that he was nothing more than a fool. Now, Jesus uses an understatement here, and this is where the argument from the lesser to the greater comes in. If God does this for the birds, if God has this level of concern and care for the ravens, then how much more valuable are you than the ravens? You see, we've been created in the image of God, and I would say to you today that your identity should not be found in what you're capable of doing. Your identity should not be found in the things that you can accumulate in this life. Your identity should not be found in the position or the prominence that you can garner for yourself in this life. Your identity should be found in the fact that you have been created in the image of God, and that goes far beyond anything that you could take hold of in this life. And I think the fact that we're made in the image or the likeness of God means that we've been made to resemble God and we've also been made to relate to God. It refers to the immaterial part of humanity, the spiritual part of us that in part makes us distinct from the animal world and enables us to commune with our creator God. We're rational, we're volitional creatures. We've been made to have fellowship with God. And of course, sin has caused the fall. Sin has the effect of separating us from God. But when we come in repentance and faith and we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are new creatures in Him, and God begins that restoration in us that is going to be complete when we are glorified in His presence. And this likeness of God made in His image is what forms our identity and tells us of our value to God. Now, he asks the rhetorical question in verse 25. And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Obviously, none of us. Why? Because worry accomplishes nothing. You can add nothing to your life by worrying. Is there any circumstance in all of life where you've ever been caught up in worrying about it and had anxiety about it, and somehow that worry and that anxiety alone changed the situation? And the obvious answer is no. And again, Jesus goes to the natural realm to make his point. He says the lilies do not uh, toil or spin, and yet they grow. Even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Remember, it takes sun and rain to make the flowers grow. And then he makes a reference here to the grass of the field. If you go back to the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, you'll find examples of the grass of the field being used to speak of the brevity of life, to speak of the fleeting nature of life. And he uses the grass of the field here to remind us 
of the brief nature of life in the importance of setting our heart on the things that matter. You see, unbelievers run after the things of the world. The phrasing of the Gentiles act in this manner is used in other places in the scripture. What's that basically saying? That's how lost people act. So if we're saved people, if we're Jesus people, if we're disciples of the king, then we shouldn't be living and relating like lost people do. And I think it's interesting in Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount, believers are cautioned three times not to behave as the pagans do. First, in their relation to people. Second, in their relation to God in prayer. And third, in their relation to material possessions. And Jesus says, listen, don't act like that. Don't get caught up in all this worry because your father knows that you need these things. So if you have needs as a child of God, you don't have to convince your heavenly father that you have these needs. Your heavenly father already knows that you have these needs. And you say, well, why would we pray then? Why would Jesus say on the one hand in Matthew's gospel that, that God knows all your needs and then in the very uh, next verses, teach us to pray, give us this day our daily bread? Because that's how God has designed it in our relationship with him because it builds faith, it builds trust. Even though God knows what we need, when we communicate that need to God and we're trusting that he's going to provide for us, what we're doing is building our confidence in the character of God. We're coming to know him better. We're growing in the depth of our faith and our relationship with him. And as we do that, you know what happens? God helps to take that anxiety away. As Paul wrote in Philippians chapter four, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is a promise today that you can take hold of and you can know that if you'll bring your prayers and supplication to God with thanksgiving and let those requests be made known to God, he'll provide for you what is for your good and for his glory. He's a loving, caring, providing heavenly father. And simply to know that God knows our needs and provides for us should be sufficient assurance for us as believers. God cares for you. God provides for you. And then the third instruction is do not worry because your heavenly father has a future for you. Now our attention moves to verses 32 through 34. We are to seek after the father's kingdom with all of the energy that we previously spent struggling for food and clothing and shelter. And these things are still of practical day to day concern. But the issue is where is your focus? And I find in verse 32, one of the most comforting verses in all the Bible. And I love the language of verse 32 because it says, do not fear little flock. Do not fear little flock for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Did you know that the term little flock is a term of endearment? It's a reminder to us that God cares for us completely. And not only does God care for us completely, God provides for us what we need. And not only does God provide for us what we need, but God also has a future for us as his people. 
So when Jesus tells us not to be afraid, you know what he's telling us? Have faith. Have faith. That's the message to the church. Have faith. Because God can be trusted. And the little flock which now needs to be fed and needs to be defended and needs to be cared for is the same group of people who will one day inherit the kingdom with all of its benefits and all of its authority. And it is the good pleasure of God. It is by the will of God's grace that He promises us a future and a hope. You say, well, what is the future that God has given us in the kingdom? Well, there's certainly a lot of things that we can't fully understand, but I can tell you what I know for sure. It's the full pardon for our sins against the king. It's the fact that we can be forgiven and stand justified. That when God sees us, he sees us not as the sinners that we were. He sees us through the holy white righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, who was willing to lay down his life for us. I think it also includes the full privileges of being a part of the family of the king. That we are the children of God and that we have the full provision of all that we need. And I think it also includes the full promise of an inheritance that belongs to the king. So it's co-heirs with Christ, everything that belongs to Christ by virtue of our faith in him also belongs to us. So right now in this moment, you might be concerned with the bills and the basics of life. But God has promised the entirety of his kingdom for you as his people. In the Gospel of John, Jesus identified himself as the good shepherd. And I think it's helpful for us to understand the purpose of a shepherd and sheep during those days to see the significance of Jesus as the good shepherd. Sheep, after all, are totally dependent on the shepherd. They're continually subject to danger and Uh, have to always be under the watchful care of the shepherd uh, for their protection and uh, for their needs. It could be something like rushing water in the valley from heavy rainfall that can wash the sheep away, or it could be robbers that would steal them, or wolves or bears that might attack them. You remember David told of how he killed a lion and a bear while he was defending his father's flock as a shepherd boy. Shepherds were often subject uh, to grave danger, even to the point of having to lay down their lives in order to protect the sheep. And this is the imagery that Jesus carries on with because in proclaiming that he himself is the good shepherd, Jesus spoke of laying down his life for the sheep. Listen to what John chapter 10 and verse 14 to 16 says. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now let's think about what that means for just a moment, the significance of it. God is building a family. He's building a flock as he gathers people to himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Jesus came to his own, who were the Jews. Many of them rejected him, but a large portion of the early church was comprised of people who in fact saw that he was the Messiah and that he was the one who had been promised by God. They became the early servants of God who were willing to give up their own lives for the sake of the gospel. 
And today the principle applies in that all who have called on the name of Jesus for salvation, all who are disciples of his are a part of the little flock already. We're already a part of the family of God. But Jesus says here that he has other sheep who are not of this fold, meaning that there are other people whom Jesus will call, the word of the gospel will go forth, the good news of salvation will be proclaimed, and they too will become a part of this little flock. So let's make application of this from the video we saw just a few moments ago. Did you know that those boys that live on the street who are referred to by people in the city as trash eaters, as worthless people, some of them are a part of the little flock of God. And there are others for whom we are praying who will become a part of the little flock of God. And as this flock is growing, what we're looking toward is we're looking toward that heavenly vision and the fulfillment of the revelation vision where there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and language who are gathered around the throne of God, who have heard the voice of Jesus, who have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, and who also are a part of the flock of God. And as we pray and give and share, we're a part of the upbuilding of God's kingdom. Now, Jesus brings us back to the principle of generosity in verse 33. He says, sell your possessions and give alms. Again, a contrast between the rich fool who selfishly kept everything for himself and the actions that the disciples of Jesus are to undertake. We don't have to hold on to our possessions for dear life. We can be concerned about the needs of others. And he says, provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. Now, what is a treasure in the heavens that does not fail? It's the future that God has for us. It's a treasure in heaven that does not fail. And I think it represents a faithfulness that will never be moved, a life that will never end, a spring of water that will never run out, a gift that can never be lost, a chain that will never be broken, a love from which we will never be separated, a calling which will never be revoked, a foundation that cannot be destroyed, and an inheritance that will never fade. Friends, these are the treasures that will last. And these are the things that we must pour our lives into. And we have a decision to make. Will we pour our lives into the things that will last, the things that are eternal, the things that are a part of the upbuilding of God's kingdom that are for the glory of God? Or will we pour our lives into things that are temporary, that are selfish, that will not last, that will not be taken with us? And the contrast is where our treasure is. And I say as I come toward a close, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The old Scottish professor and preacher, James Stewart, once made a helpful distinction between the foreground and the background of life. He used the metaphor of a painting. And he said that life has both a foreground and a background, much like a painting. The foreground represents the things that are right in front of us. 
the things that we easily focus on and can feel like are right on top of us. It's the things that we can easily see. And the background of life represents the invisible, unseen spiritual realities that are behind us and beyond us. And then he says this, just like the foreground and the background are two parts of the very same painting and are interconnected and relate to one another, so the seen and the unseen, the physical and the spiritual, make up the portrait of our lives and our world. Our trouble too often in life is all we focus on is the foreground with our immediate problems, and we lose sight of the unseen, divine, eternal background that's meant to put everything else into proper perspective. Eternity is long, and life is short. Come what may, whatever it is, we can say with confidence, great is the faithfulness of our God. And may his faithful character and his eternal kingdom be the background that transforms how we see the foreground of life that is in front of us. And may we live our lives not anxious and worried, but confident and with faith. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. Friends, I don't know where you're at today spiritually. If you're a follower of Jesus, maybe the weight of life has caused you to be burdened and to have cares that you don't know what to do with. And God is calling you in his word to cast all of your cares on him because he cares for you. He'll provide the needs that you have, and he's already promised a really bright future. Would you take a moment to transfer those concerns and those cares to God? And just say, God, I can't, but you can. And I don't want to be wrapped up in this worry and this anxiety. I want to trust you with my whole heart, my whole life. And I want to walk with you by faith. Maybe you're listening to this message here in the room or online or listen to it later on and you couldn't say with confidence that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. God is calling you today to become a part of his flock. Would you hear the voice of Jesus that is calling you to come and to repent and believe in him? Your life could be forever changed in this moment if you'll trust in Christ as your Savior and Lord. God, we're so grateful today that we can be called your little flock, that your watchful eye is caring for us in every regard. Nothing goes unnoticed. And you're with us every step of the way. I pray that you would lift our burdens and our cares and our concerns and make the roots of our faith go down deep so that we would hold strong no matter what the circumstances are that we face. Jesus, thank you for this teaching that is a reminder to us of the very practical nature of our faith and how it's meant to be lived day by day through a simple trust in you. We give this time of close and response over to you. And Lord, if there are decisions or steps of faith that need to be taken or or made, I pray that people would respond appropriately. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.